Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. And I hope you're having a good uh, Fourth of July extended weekend. I hope you've got uh, Friday off as well, not just Thursday. And, uh, you know, the Fourth of July, uh, I try to get my grandkids to read the Declaration of Independence every, they get about halfway through it before I have to wreak independence on them. Try to get them to, uh, to do it. It's a good thing. Yeah, we, we, uh, if you look back into your family heritage, sometimes you can find uh, particular people or stories. And, and our family, since we've been in this community for well over 200 years, both sides of my family, uh, you know, there's a story that one of uh, one of my ancestors on the Todd side of the family supplied uh, food and uh, ammunition to Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox. That he had a store right out here, and uh, he used to run up to the PD and run supplies up there. And we love to tell those stories, and and uh, we love the good stories. But sometimes, you know, the bad stories about family we kind of slide to the side. You know, you, you, have you ever heard people? Uh, say to you, you're just like your daddy, or, uh, you know, it's just a saying, I don't know about up north, but I know around south we hear that a lot, or you're just like your mama, or you you look just like your daddy. Uh, I think I look a lot like my dad. Uh, we we both have got, uh, what I would say, uh, let's just say that they cleared out a lot of field. They should have probably... You can put that up if you want to, Rachel. Uh, yeah, picture there. Uh, you know, I wish they'd left a little more, like a little more forest... You know, but when they came to this, when they came here from Ireland, they just cleared a lot of field out from the forest, and uh, you know, it's just a part of, <laughs> yeah, and it's just a part of the family, right? It's a part of your DNA. It's a part of your heritage. And I wish that I got a little more of my mom's looks, you know. But I mean, I look like, I look like my dad. I look like I think like my granddad, and uh, in which we, you know, we all got that huge field, and uh, it's just part of it. And I wish that the things of our past. Uh, were that, you know, most of them were humorous, and I wish that uh, most of our heritage was where we could laugh about most of it, but in all honesty, there are th- some things about our past that aren't that funny, aren't they? And I mean, there are things that, that enter our lives, and there are traits, and there are certain issues that pop up, it seems like, that were there in our grandparents, great-grandparents, and all of a sudden, they start showing up in our life, and we go, I don't get this, what it is. Now, I, I, this morning, as we continue this series called It's All in the Family. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me because I don't believe in blaming anybody for our struggles. I think we have to own that stuff and we have to deal with it. But scripturally wise, there is something to this whole issue of there being certain proclivities or uh, let's say a, a sensitivity maybe even to certain sins and all that seem to be like almost handed down. And, and I think talking about family and talking about who we are and how we move on from here to be healthy, we can't just discount that. We can't just shove that to the side, and especially when the Scripture doesn't push it to the side. But they deal with it. This is what I... Let me, let me tell you the acronym or the, the initials I came up with, rather, uh, for this kind of talk. I ride down Highway 90 a lot, and there's a club out in this one particular community that has on its sign, Big Folk Party. <laughs> Big Folk's Party. 
This morning, what we're talking about is big folk talk, okay? This is for adults. This is for people who aren't afraid to look at their life and go, you know what? This is a serious issue, and it's something that maybe we sidestep a lot in church and we don't want to talk about. But if we're going to be everything that Christ has called us to be, we need to take a look at this. We need to deal with this. We need to see what God has to say about this issue in our life. And so this is a BFT. This is a big folk talk this morning. Okay, so all of you, all you guys are adults, right? Consider yourselves level-headed and uh, able to process information in a healthy way. And none of you are sensitive, right? And uh, you're going to get your heal- feelings hurt real easy. And you're able to, to look at life and look at Scripture and embrace it and go, Okay, Lord, this is, this is tough for me to face. But, hey, if, if you've talked about it and you've dealt with it in your Scripture and I know you love me and you care for me, then I know that, uh, that you'll be with me and you'll help me. You'll help me understand so I can grow up in you and I can become all that you wanted me to, to be. Uh, like I said, I don't blame anybody for, for like, I'm not going to blame anybody for what their father or their grandfather or grandmother or grandfather did or anything like that. But I, I used to do jail ministry and I used to hear these, this is back when I was in my 20s and I heard the most horrendous stories, you know, of things that happened when kids were growing up. Uh, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, with people who were on death row at, for about a year or two years, and I heard confessions, and people would tell me uh, the way they, they, the things they went through, and it was just incredible to me, the pain. And then I read recently about, uh, here's, a, here's an example that some of us would remember, and I'm not picking on President Clinton. I want you to understand this. This could be anybody, but... Uh, I read this by, this is an article by a psychiatrist who looked at President Bill Clinton's life. And uh, President Clinton said that his life growing up was a normal life, that he had a normal childhood. And yet he had an alcoholic stepfather. He had a stepfather who was violent, abusive, unfaithful to Clinton's mom. He had a stepfather who fired a loaded shotgun in the home at his mother. And it was President Clinton's job as a young man to take care of his mom and take care of the family and to act as the real father in that home. And yet he said he had a normal childhood. Now, see, that's not normal. But that's what happens when we live in a certain context for so long. The abnormal becomes normal because it's the only normal we know until we get out of it and we experience something that's different or something that maybe is much healthier. A psychologist said this about uh, President Clinton's perception. The perception that he had a normal childhood indicates Clinton's deeply ingrained denial of his youthful experiences. But one must grasp his deep-seated love of denial when he describes a childhood of repeated episodes of an abandonment, parental alcoholism, marriage of his mother, divorce, remarriage, his stepfather's death, violence directed at his mother, brother, and himself, his second stepfather's death, gunshots discharged in his home as a normal life. A true description of Clinton's childhood would be chaotic and highly abnormal. And like I said, my, my purpose is not to blame anybody, but to, to take us on this journey, all of us, to be freed to be what God enabled us because I'm very grateful us to be. I'm very grateful that Jesus came right down in the middle of our family mess and just redeemed and continues to redeem and to work to heal and set free all of us 
wherever we are in our family situations. So you guys are big folk, right? Up for the BFT? Up for the big folk talk, right? Because this is, this is where, this is serious stuff. This is the stuff that we cannot not talk about if we love our families, if we love our children, our grandchildren. And so we have to talk about this blessed mess. Maybe you have already seen that uh, in your family in a way. You grew up with a very stern father who maybe never told you he loved you, and so now you feel driven constantly to gain approval from people. That's the way some of this can work out in us, or to gain a sense of, of value for yourself. Uh, maybe you were left alone a lot. There's a sense of abandonment, and so you always got to be around people. You always want to be near people, always struggling. As a matter of fact, being alone with God is even a struggle. It's like, what do I do when I'm with God? I feel, I, don't, I get nervous when I'm alone. I have to be around some people, and we don't realize what's going on inside of us. Or you grew up in a home where the expectations were extremely high of always being good and perfect. And so you may have an unconscious drive to perfection and, you know, you end up hurting yourself because you're always pushing yourself out there, always just trying to, to, uh, to excel. And sometimes they're unrealistic, those goals. And uh, how many of us have recognized some of, if you've got kids, you've already recognized that your parenting style, you picked up a little bit from your parents. Or you reacted so strongly to what you experienced that you would not dare go near that. So you go all the way on the other side of it to stay away from it because it had such a bad taste in your mouth. Either way, it's affecting you. Either way. Both ways, it's, a, it's almost like a gun in your back. It's almost like it's taking you hostage and it's helping control uh, your relationship with your kids, with your family. Someone says, uh, your, or maybe your spouse eventually would go, you sound just like your father, you know. Or do you realize you're, and we don't want to hear that, do we? Like, wait a minute. Sometimes we do when it's good, but when it's bad. Or maybe we've made these declarations like, I will never be like my mom. So we make this vow. I will never be like my mom. I will never be like my dad. And so what happens, either we end up like them or we bounce to the other side all the way 180 degrees to the other side and we are just as radical on that side as what we experienced on that side. So we, we just, it's almost like we need, you know, we need to be freed. Someone needs to come along and free us to be able to be the parents, to be the family that God always intended for us to be. The good was handed down to us. And the bad has been handed down to us. And so, you know, it's kind of like Shakespeare. Shakespeare said that what's past is prologue. You get that? What's past is prologue. What's past is just, the, you know, before the big event. You're going to see it again. Whatever you saw in the past, you're going to see again. So we're going we're gonna to pray, and uh, we're going to jump into this BFT this morning, this big folk talk, Okay. So let's do this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not leave us to our own selves to make it through this life uh, completely hindered and broken by past experience. But Jesus, you broke into the world, into a, a world that was hurt and cries for deliverance and cries for hope. And so this morning we ask for you to come bless your word. Give us insight into these stories, Lord, in the Old Testament, in the grand story of the New Testament that all of the Old Testament points to. Jesus, we need you. You're our elder brother. You're our Savior. 
And Father, you're the true and good Father. Indeed, who is like our God? Who is like our God? You love us and you are continuing to save us and to heal us and to free us, Lord, to be all that you want us to be. So, Father, come. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be over in Genesis 12 this morning where we're going we're gonna to look at a story of uh, the father of the faith, Abraham, and uh, try to see if we can glean a little bit from him. Genesis 12 and, let's say, verses 10 through 20. While you're making your way in your Bible over there, this is the story of Abraham, or Abram, as he started out, he was called. Remember, he was going to be the father of multitude. So he started out as his name Abram. It changed to Abraham uh, as he got kids because he just couldn't have children, you know. But God promised him, you're going to have not just one child, but you're going to have a multitude. And actually, a whole nation is going to be birthed. A whole nation is going to be birthed from you. And yet, they had no kids at one time. And so here they are living in a, in a land that suddenly is struck with a famine. There is no food. And so Abraham grabs all of his uh, entourage up together and they go down to Egypt in order to survive. They're immigrants. Abraham's an immigrant and he's going down into another country to Egypt just so he can survive, so he can get some food and live. And so that's where we join the story here in Genesis 12. Let's start at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. You love that, wouldn't you, husbands, when you're, wives, when your husbands tell you that? I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me but let you live. She must have been quite the looker, huh? And he must have not been looking that good. Say... <laughs> Say, you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. <laughs> then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. That take her and go, interesting, just side note, is the same phrase that eventually when Moses left Egypt, that's the same phrase, go, that Pharaoh told Moses and the children of Israel eventually, just get your stuff and go. I've had enough of it. Go. And so here we got to Abram. Uh, he's going into this place. He looks over at his wife. They're going to the Egyptians. He's thinking, my wife is beautiful. She's going to look very exotic in this new tech context, in this new culture. Sure enough, they're going to kill me to get to her. Who's he care about? Oh, he cares about himself, exactly. And, I mean, God's already promised to him and promised him that he would be the father of a great nation. He's putting a lot of things on the line with this. I mean, basically, 
He's, he's, he's got all of Israel almost on the line at this moment by his stupid decision and his decision to, to be more concerned with himself than he did his own wife. And so he didn't care about his wife, and he endangered the plan for Israel because God had a grand plan. And, I mean, Pharaoh could have killed Abram at that mo- moment and said, man, she's, she's so beautiful, let's just get rid of the husband and let's, let's, let's get her, you know, let me keep her. But God... God was able to break through on Pharaoh and get to him. And you know what? Our inability to trust God is always at the root of our own cutting corners. Anytime we want to cut corners in our family, in our business, in our relationships, whatever we want to do, it always has to do with our inability to trust God. And Abram could not trust God in this situation. He went into it and he began to manipulate it. We do the same thing at times with our jobs, and so we lie, we cut corners, we manipulate our resumes and kind of puff them up a little bit. You know, they'll never check. You know, we puff them up, and, or we lie about our taxes because we don't trust God to meet our needs, and we feel like we have to, to, have to cheat people in order to get by. Or we cheat God out of our giving, our tithes, our offerings, because we don't think God would take care of us. We don't think God will honor the fact that we give, and so... It's all an inability to trust God. We get in trouble time and time again because of our distrust of God. We just don't believe God can protect us either. And so we have to do everything we can, even putting people in, that we love and we care about maybe in harm's way because we care more about ourselves. And Abraham had to leave that place where Pharaoh discovered this. He had to leave and he went to a place called the Negev. And this is going to be in Genesis 20. I'm going to flip over there. And uh, that's the area now known as Gaza. That's where he goes from Egypt over to Gaza in this journey. Because he gets, he's run out of Egypt. So he goes there. He's still got to eat, right? So let's see what happens next with them. Uh, let's go to Genesis 20. And I don't know how much I'll read here. We'll see. Genesis 20. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. What? But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning, basically kept you from having sex with her, against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. and He will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Abram just did not learn his lesson, did he? I mean, that fear is so strong in him that everywhere he goes, he will put his loved ones on the line for his own skin. Like, I'll save myself at the expense of my wife. Everywhere he went, he used Sarah. And Sarah, she's what we might call an enabler. She went right along with it. She enabled it. She wouldn't call his hand. She wouldn't say to him, I can't believe you're doing this to me. There's no way I'm going along with this. She wouldn't put her foot down. But you know what? It doesn't just stay in Abram's generation. Flip over to Genesis 26, verses 1. And we'll read a few verses here to 
Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land beside the previous, previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac, this is their child, right? The promised child. And Isaac went to Abimelech. Same guy. Same king. Went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. Here's the promise. And I skip on down verse 6. So Isaac stayed in Gerard. Then look at 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. Just like his daddy, he married a good-looking woman. And just like his daddy, he married an enabler. And just like his daddy, he's doing the same thing again. She is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech su- summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Now, there's a whole lot in that, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot in that. Are you getting the point? And your fill-in today, your first fill-in there that just uh, with all that we just read is the past is always present. The past is always present. The family mess, it shows up in generation after generation. The struggles, the fear, the perfectionism, anxiety, addiction, promiscuity, weakness for money and sex. Uh, And then there's the enabling Sarah and Rebecca justified all of it and kept that system alive. God had to break into it. He had to pierce that whole system, that family system, in order to get their attention. And uh, so your second fill-in is this, that past sins have present implications. Past sins have present implications. The Ten Commandments over in Exodus 20, as you're reading through those, you get to the second one as God is talking about remaining faithful to him, and we read this very difficult statement. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's tough. That's a BFT right there. That's a tough word. Like, wait a minute, God. I mean, that doesn't sound fair, does it? Does that sound fair to you? doesn't to me. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I look at God and go, I don't get this. Why are you saying that I have to, you know, why do the sins of my grandparents and my parents have to be visited on me? Why would that happen? That doesn't seem right. But you know what? Through all of this, this is a... The commandment about having idols in our life and that God is not satisfied with that much of your life. He wants all of your life. He wants every bit of your life. He doesn't want just 10% of your life. He wants all of it. 
And that is a part of this, that God is after it. He's after your sex life. He's after your business life. He's after your practices, your anger, your, your ability to forgive. He's after all of that. And he's not going to put up with just having a little bit. He's not going to put up with that, with you giving him a little bit of his life, of your life. He's after all of it. But what does it mean, punishing the children for the sins of the parents? What does that mean exactly? You know, 300 times in the Old Testament, the word punishing is used. And there is some controversy over the definition of that word. But no matter how you approach the word, we can say that it does mean that the children of the parents and the grandparents do suffer for the sins of their fathers and their grandfathers, the parents. Somehow, somehow, innocent individuals are carried along, kind of like in a stream, are carried along somehow, and they pick up, and there are some things passed on that we wish that weren't. Uh, there's a lot of examples of that happening. And I mean, if you think about groups of people that suddenly get caught up in something that's not healthy and that's evil. Uh, I watch a lot of documentaries and I watched, I don't know how many on World War II and I've seen these about the, you know, Germany and, and how that there were some very good moral people in Germany who got swept up in the whole thing with Hitler. They didn't agree with him, but somehow this flow came into this country and suddenly it grabbed them. And that, I mean, there's no excuse. They can't say, you know, they can't blame that on anybody. But somehow that force pulled them along in the stream that, that ended up killing millions of innocent people. Now, granted, in this culture, when these scriptures were written... Families lived together for a long time. It would not be uncommon for there to be three generations living in your family. Nowadays, we don't even know who our grandparents are. We go see them maybe once a year, twice a year. We put them in a nursing home and we might go see them every now and then or something. In this generation, three, four generations would be together and live together until they died. And so you were around that influence constantly. You were around that influence of the, of the father and the mother and the grandfather and the grandmother, even the great-grandfather and the great-grandmother. And, uh, I mean, I'm old enough. I had our, my grandmother live with us until she died on my mom's side. And, uh, and so, granted, we don't have that now. So maybe we don't have as much influence in our life as we used to. Of course, we don't get the good either, do we? When they're not around us, we don't get the stories and we don't get the good character that they have and they want to pass on. We don't get that either. And uh, again, this is a BFT. Hang in here with me. We're going to get we're going to get to some help here in just just a second. This is a big folk talk. However we look at this scripture, there's one thing that we need to know that we can't do what we want and say, well, my sins only affect me. We can't do that. Whatever you think about these scriptures, we cannot say that. We cannot say my sin is between me and God, nobody else. Because that's just not true. It's just not true. And that is a very, that's a big point, isn't it? And that's a tough point to embrace. To grab and say, gosh, my sins are affecting the people I love the most in my life. But that's a wake up point when we do realize that. It's time for change. That's the big folk talk. And that's a big folk point right there for us. Um, people used to, I realize there are reasons for divorce, abuse, unfaithfulness, addictions that get out of hand and wreak havoc, which I realize that. But, you know, it used to be that people would stay in marriage for the kids, that they would stick it out. Not when there was abuse. Some people need to get out, no doubt about it. Not when they're 
it's wreaking havoc in the system and all, but it used to be that we would say, I'm sticking it out for the kids, but we don't live in that anymore. That's not our culture anymore. And it has repercussions. BFT, you hanging with me? Tough subject, I know. But we also got BFG, big folks grace. You know, it comes from the Father. So we're not going to forget that, okay? There's BFG here with a BFT. So hang in there with me. But we got to talk about this. You know, we got to talk about this. We used to, you know, we have probably the most liberal divorce laws, some of the most liberal in the world. France has stronger divorce laws than we do, and uh, which is amazing, isn't it? And uh, it's like this uh, lady, Judith Wallerstein, wrote, uh, developed a report that was written over a 25-year span, not just a small time period, but over 25 years she monitored children of divorce. And uh, here's some of the things that it says about uh, those, those 25 years of watching those kids go from children up into their 40s, you know, or early 20s and 30s. And she says that while children do learn to cope with divorce, it in fact takes its greatest toll in adulthood. When the sons and daughters of divorced parents embark on romantic relationships of their own, Wallerstein sensitively illustrates how children of divorce often feel that their relationships are doomed, seek to avoid conflict, and fear commitment. Failure in their loving relationships often seems to them preordained, even when things are going smoothly, because of what they experience. Your last villain here is this, though. And here's the BFG. The past doesn't have to be the future. The past does not have to be the future. The future is yet to be written. And that's the beautiful part of it. Exodus 20 and verse 6, when we were reading that second commandment, let's don't forget the sixth verse. We read the fifth one about the sins of the parents and the grandparents, but the sixth verse says this, but showing love to a thousand generations, not just third and fourth with the, with the, you know, wreaking havoc on it, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who, what, love me and keep my commandments. That is the promise for us as followers of Christ, that that whole system can be redeemed, it can be changed as we love Jesus we don't have to remain the same. We don't have to take that baggage into the future. As a matter of fact, if you are a follower of Christ, God has called you to break that curse, to break that chain, to start a whole new heritage. And I want you to know there is forgiveness. There is big grace available because there's not a single one of us that don't need it. There's not a single one of us that don't have sins that we wish were not being passed down to our kids. And we look at them as they get older and older and we see things in them and we go, that was me. That was, that's me. How do I get this out? And how do I re- replace it with something beautiful and healthy for them? How do we do that? And that is the beautiful, beautiful opportunity for the grace of God to flood in and stop this whole process and for there to be a new family line established. We can get our finances in order. We can break addictions. We can see our marriages healed. We can stop enabling bad behavior. We can come alongside the people we love the most and go, I love you, but I'm not going to enable you anymore. You know what? You're a BF. You're a big folk. You know? You're a big person. It's time for you to stand up on this stuff. 
Don't blame anybody else. Well, you know, it's the way I've always been. My daddy was like this. Well, he was wrong, and he was miserable. Do you want to be wrong and miserable? Do you? Or do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? Do you want to pass on this great, beautiful heritage of redemption to your children, to your grandkids? There's, uh, God sheds light on uh, explaining this whole system in Ezekiel 18. Just, if we didn't have Ezekiel 18, uh, 1 and 2, and, and the following scriptures all the way down to almost verse 20, then, then we would have to struggle even more. But in Ezekiel 18, God is speaking to Israel, and it says, The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The father eats sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Do you get that metaphor? This is a smart book. This book, that, I read that. I still get chills when I read it. I'm thinking that is one of the most poetic but most, I guess, soul-shaking statements I've read because what he's saying is the parents eat the sour grapes, but the kids grind their teeth. You get this? The parents eat the sour grapes, but the kids are going, oh, it's bitter. But the word of the Lord, what do you people mean? God is asking Israel, what do you mean by saying that? What do you mean? God says, hold up. Hold up. And so he goes on in verses 5 through 9, and he names a generation. He starts talking about three generations through this passage of Scripture. And he says that the one who does right in verses 5 through 9 will live. The one that does right will live. Then he says there's a second generation that decides not to do right. An unrighteous generation in verses 10 through 13. And he says they're going to die. Spiritually, they're going to die. And then he says there's a third generation that looks back on the first two generations and sees what the grandfather and the father, the grandmother and the mother did. And then they choose by looking back to do what is right. And he says, they will live. That's our generation. Ezekiel 18 through 20. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. We have a choice now. We have a choice In verses 21 through 23, But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. And then here's God's heart, which is fully expressed in Christ. But do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, I am not pleased. Am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? We need to recognize it. Name it, confess it to God, and turn. You know, Jesus promised us a new life. We have example after example. There's Peter, the apostle Peter, denying Jesus three times. And he turns out, he gives his whole life for Christ. It's almost like he has a personality change as God comes and does this miraculous work. And we have the Apostle Paul, who hated Christians, who hunted them down and killed them, who is suddenly confronted by the Christ. 
And he changes and he ends up giving his life for Jesus. Those are testimonies to, for us to know that our life can change and we do not have to live like the past. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is God's plan for us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, what? New creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That is what God is saying to you this morning. As you look at your family, as you look back and you see these recurring sins and recurring unhealthy behaviors in your life, Christ is offering new life. In 1 Peter 1.14, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. That's a BFT right there. All right. Prepare your minds for action, big people. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, interesting he uses that, right? Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's what church is. We're on a journey to become what God says we are in Christ. This is a description of who we are in Christ. And now we're on the journey to become that. To become the fathers, the mothers, the children, the grandfathers, the grandmothers. That God says that we are in him. But we can't get there without admitting that we've got some baggage in our life that we need to deal with. And God's grace and mercy is here to help us. The church is here so we can walk this thing out together. May God come and bless this beautiful mess we call family. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.